Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. This will be our final sermon in the first two verses. This is, it's number five. All right, it's the fifth sermon uh, in these first two verses. And I, I, I could do ten more. I, I know you hear that and you think, what? Seriously? I, uh, this, this is one of those uh, texts of Scripture. Um, all of it is inspired, all right? All of it is God's Word, inerrant and infallible. Uh, but some of it speaks very directly to some of the most essential things about Christian living. Uh, and and this, this text is one of them. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Am I the only person here who thinks it's becoming harder and harder to make choices? Anybody else? No? Just me. Yeah, pastor, just you. Sorry about that. All right, great. Had you walked into a grocery store in 1975, you would have been confronted with about 9,000 products. That same grocery store in 2008, that number swelled to 47,000 choices. And that was 11 years ago. Now, it seems like we have a lot of choices that we have to make. Again, just just think of that same store that you may go into. I found this interesting. That that same store, had you gone in in 1975 and you needed toothpaste, you would have had options of you could buy Crest, you could buy Colgate. But you go in today and you're going to find 27 varieties of Crest. All right? I know we have at least one professional here who maybe could explain that to us, but otherwise there's a lot of options, all right? Twenty-five options for Colgate. It's a lot of toothpaste to choose from, right? Same grocery store would have about nine varieties of Pringles, eleven varieties of Cheerios, and twenty-five different kinds of head and shoulder shampoo. These are just some of the choices that would confront you. And on top of that, we've had to learn a whole new language, haven't we? Organic, all-natural, free-range, limited mobility. That's not one, but it should be, right? I mean, they give me the other option. These chickens move faster. These were slow, all right? So fast chickens make better eggs. I don't know. So, so the, choi- the choices, the choices we are presented with, I mean, it's significant, right? And, and that doesn't even include all the other products that are out there, and that doesn't even include if you decide rather than to walk into a store, to go to Amazon. I mean, go ahead and think of something that you need, and then Google it, 
And there it is, right? I mean, more often than not, you know, there, there it is. And in fact, you may have 20 different options to choose from. The number of choices with which we are presented is a staggering reality of life in this day and age that no other period of time has ever experienced. The options are really unbelievable. And so, in fact, some of you, and you know who you are in this room, you have so many choices that you just can't even make one, right? It's overwhelming. You, 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 what, they call it what? A, analysis paralysis, right? You go through all, you want to, you read all the reviews, you look at all of the options, you line up all of the choices and it becomes difficult. Which, which one do I make? And then there are some who when you make the choice, you are then confident you made the wrong one when you get home, right? I mean, that's what happens. It's hard. There's a lot of choices out there. But this doesn't even get to the important choices. I mean those, those life-shaping, life-altering, life-significant kinds of choices with which you are confronted. And not only those that may impact you, but then making choices that will impact other people around you. Choices related to your relationships, marriage, family, right? spouses, children, friends, choices related to uh, your, the work environment, either what you are doing or what you will be doing, places where you're going to live. Uh, th- then add to that other relationships that you may form. Uh, add to that then choices as it pertains to, say, church life. Choices that are out there Uh, when it comes to direction in life. There's all kinds. And then then there are the everyday moral, ethical kinds of choices with which we are confronted. And so I think we, we, we find ourselves in a situation where really all throughout our day... We are engaged in this ever-growing uh, process of being confronted with options, evaluating those options, making decisions, and I'm afraid what happens is a lot of times, because this can be so much, we just ignore it all and go with our gut, right? I, I'm just going to do what I think seems right. Let's just do this, or let's just do that. And we may end up making spur-of-the-moment, on-the-spot spontaneous decisions, some of which come screaming back to haunt us, right? I mean, in one sense, you could even almost argue that your life is fundamentally the sum total of your choices, the nature of the choices that you make. Well, the good news is the Bible's not without instruction here. And in fact, this is Paul's last concern in these opening two verses of this last section of the book of Romans. And, and we have been in four messages up to this point, and I promise you this will be the last one in, in these two verses. Sorry, not in Romans, okay? You know, my goodness gracious, wow. Okay, but not in Romans, but in these verses. This will be it as... As Paul is now going to wrap up this particular opening statement, this transitional statement that takes us from what was, what was a profound and majestic explanation of the gospel, verses 1 and 2, the reason why I think they're so significant, 
One, they, they are very familiar, and so we can just gloss over them. Two, they set up everything that is to come in the rest of the book, and they are drawn from everything that has come before it. The, the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 12 is the biggest therefore in all of the therefores in the Bible. Nothing refers back to more information than this one. Paul is then laying out for us what is the foundational principles for what it looks like to live out the gospel that he has just described and defended for us. And to put it simply, chapter chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 lay out for us as a natural consequence of the gospel that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ should yield our lives to Christ under the gospel with, with what, what I have, have termed full devotion, be, being fully devoted to Christ. This should be the natural consequence, outgrowth of the gospel in our lives. So what does that look like? What does it look like to, to yield ourselves fully devoted unto the Lord? What do we need to understand in order to do that? We've looked at four ideas thus far. Paul grounds his teaching in the mercy of God. It's a critical idea. If you, you and I are going to get this right, we need to know that this is because of the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So God's mercy, again, that, that takes us back to 1 through 11 and all of the precious promises of God's grace to us then make the gospel life even possible in the first place. Then we looked at the issue of sacrifice, the language of offering a living Good, holy, and acceptable sacrifice unto God, and that that is described as our reasonable or appropriate service. Then we looked at the issue of separation. Paul fills out then this language of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Part of that involves avoiding the corrupting powers of the world. So he says, do not be conformed. Don't be pressed then back into the mold that the gospel has broken you out of. Don't be formed and fashioned back into that. And then last week then we looked at the the, the thing that should happen at the same time that we're not being conformed. At the same time we're not being conformed, we should give ourselves then to transformation, which comes by virtue of renewing the mind. And so we spent all last week talking about what it looks like to renew the mind. And, And again, just to stress this, If we are not actively engaged on a regular process of feeding our minds that which uh, is consistent with the gospel, uh, then we're we're never going to be able to avoid the conforming powers of the world. So it's critical that we think carefully about what is influencing our thoughts. Think about what is influencing your thinking. Make sure that you're, you're, you're utilizing those resources that God has given to us that we talked about at the end of the service then last Sunday. So this morning, let's look at number five. The final phrase of this text, I think the final category to consider to understand what it means to be fully devoted. Fully devoted life understands obedience. Now, you'll notice this follows naturally. What Paul is going to say here follows naturally from what he's just said. Note that last part. So verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that. So that, in order to. So, the last phrase is a phrase of, I guess you'd say, consequence. Of result. So I do all of these things. I I yield myself fully devoted to God. Understanding my life is to be lived as a living sacrifice unto Him. Devoted in such a way that is pleasing and acceptable in His sight. While at the same time resisting the, the conforming powers of this world. Being transformed by the renewal of my mind. Because in this, I am able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The profound promise, I think, of this last phrase is that when it comes to the overwhelming number of choices that confront us, and in particular those life-changing, altering, life-significant kinds of choices, Paul's instruction here, simple, straightforward, just a few words, just one phrase, tells us, I think, All that we need to know in order to get this right. Meaning that you and I, when confronted with these choices, can make choices in such a way that they are consistent with God's will. So so again, you know, Paul Paul is giving us, I I think, a profound promise. If you do these things, do verses 1 through 2a and b, and then this is what will result. Now, before we go any further, let me suggest, if you find yourself struggling with the idea of God's will, we'll get into that in just a minute a little more carefully, and if you wonder, well, what would God want me to do in situation A, B, C, or D, if your first response is to go to the answer to that question, rather than walking yourself through the initial expectations, meaning... Am I a living sacrifice? Am I avoiding confirmation of the world? And am I living a transformed life by virtue of a renewed mind? If I'm jumping over that to say, God, what do you want me to do here? God, how do I do do this? Should I move here? Should I do this job? What should I do when it it comes to my family situation? What what should I do when it comes to this moral or ethical situation that's confronting me? If my impulse is to jump over these other things to that and then get frustrated with God because I don't get an answer, you're, you're circumventing the process so that you can get to the end. Which, by the way, I understand that. Cut to the chase, right? God, just give me the answer. Right now. Yes, okay, yeah, all right, preacher, living sacrifice, conforming power, whatever. Yeah, you spent 25 sermons talking about it. All right, okay. You said last week, Pastor, you're going to tell us what the will of God was for every single person in the room. And I will. And you're not going to be happy with it. All right, but I am going to tell you, okay? I will, we will. So let's flesh it out first. First, I want to make a comment depending on what kind of translation you've got. When I read the end of verse 2 there, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, some of you don't have that. In other words, it doesn't read quite like that. So there are some differences in these translations. For example, the ESV is going to say that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
If you have a New American Standard, it's going to be similar. It's going to say, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, some of the translations kind of break this phrase into two. So that you have this, you have this encouragement promise to us that you'll be able to discern God's will, comma, those things which are good and acceptable and perfect. Now, just so you know, again, that this is just, this is just some translation difference in, in theory of translation, and, and we could go all into uh, nominative and genitive, and do you want to do that? Probably not, okay? Uh, but you could get all into that, how nouns and adjectives, how they, uh, how they support one another, and what, what's, you know, what is modifying what. And I just use the word modify, and some of you are like, right? I mean, you're just, I'm losing you as I even say such grammatical stuff. So that's why there's differences there, but theologically and practically, it makes no difference. I mean, really, it, really, it doesn't change what, the, what Paul is saying. In other words, go, taking either side, it is fundamentally this, that if you give yourself to this process of mind renewal, of transformation, then you are in a position to know and do the will of God, i.e., those things which are good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the good and acceptable and perfect is the will of God. And the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? So at the end of the day, we find ourselves still in the same spot. (laughs) So break out these phrases. That you may prove. That word prove can be tricky for us. If we hear that word, we may naturally think somebody proving an argument. We may think of like maybe something in science where somebody's trying to prove a theory. Maybe we think about a court of law where somebody's trying to prove guilt or innocence. And though that's part of the term here, the term really, I, I think, uh, ha- has a bit more complexity to it. That's why some translations use the word test. Some use the word discern. Both the NIV and the ESV give us two words. Uh, the NIV says, test and approve the will of God. NIV says that by testing you may discern... You may say, okay, so what's, what's the deal with all that? So Paul begins here by talking about this expectation that we would live in light of God's will by saying we'll be able to prove, we'll be able to test, meaning we'll be able to take a look at the range of choices that are in front of us. And we'll be able to evaluate each one, put each one to the test. In other words, the, the, the Greek word that's used here does mean test to the point of being able to approve the right choice so that you can then act accordingly. So that's the promise of the verse. You, you, you can look at the range of options that are in front of you. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, if you go to a grocery store and you're figuring out which kind of Colgate to buy, this process doesn't count for that, all right? It may shock you, God does not care what kind of Colgate you get, all right? I mean, he does want you to brush your teeth, though, right? Okay, yeah, so he does want you to do that for, for all, all of our sakes. All right, we do, yeah, that is all good. 
But that's not what we're talking about. He, you know, this is definitely talking about what that living sacrifice looks like. So, when I'm confronted with choices, moral, ethical, situational choices, I need to be able to evaluate them and then approve. This is it. This is the way that would fulfill that which is most pleasing in God's sight. And even if you can't say it that way, to be able to evaluate the choices and say, all right, well, these are no-brainers, right? These options, we're, we're going to take these off the table. And so I have these two or three. More, more on that in just a moment. So, so the promise, though, is just this. Can, can I discern, test, to the point of being able to approve what is the appropriate way to go? When I read this word, I think of another word, and that's the word vetting. Familiar with the, we, we use the phrase, so-and-so went through the vetting process, all right? Doesn't mean you got sent to a vet, all right? But it does mean that what has happened is you, maybe you have been recommended for a job, or maybe you're looking for a contractor, Maybe, there, maybe there's a, uh, some business you want to be involved in. And so you are vetting people. So, so if, you're, if you've been, let's say you've been uh, uh, recommended for a job, what that job should do is take a look at your resume, track it down, check out references, call past em- employers, right? To, fi- to figure out if the way you presented yourself is in fact the accurate reflection of who you are. So, so em- employers are trying to figure out, is this person going to be a good fit? They're, they're vetting them, and chances are they're vetting more than one candidate. Right? This happens a lot in the political realm. People get vetted for political appointments. Y- you could argue that the whole voting process is our attempt to vet those who are running for office. So just think of this as like a spiritual, theological vetting process. Discerning what, what is the appropriate course of action. What is the right way to think about things? What is the right thing to do? To, to take a look at all of those options that are before you. Now, if you would like to grow in your ability to be more discerning, here's a product placement. All right, you ready for this? Come back Wednesday night, 6 o'clock, all right, because I'm teaching a brand new series on, I should have a book for it, right? And you can purchase this for $10 or 25 for 2 all right? I should do that at the end of the service, but I don't. But you come on Wednesday nights, and I am teaching, how can we develop discernment in a day of deception? How can we become more discerning? So we'll flesh that out more in the weeks to come on Wednesday night. But this is what I think is called upon here. The reason we want to give ourselves to the process that's outlined for us by Paul is because we want to be able to test and approve. We want to be able to discern. We want to be able to vet these options and make appropriate ones, appropriate decisions. Again, church, I'm concerned that we don't always operate this way. I'm concerned that we don't thoroughly vet. I know, and this is my purpose for the, for the Wednesday night series, 
I know believers can have a lot of trouble vetting theological sources. What I mean by that, those who preach and teach and the music that gets listened to, the movies that get watched that are labeled quote-unquote Christian or faith-based movies. Sometimes we even don't, we even, uh, we, we don't think we should be testing these things, right? Should we really be evaluating these sources? Well, of course we should. Of course we should. If somebody claims to, to have truth, then yes, you should be vetting them. You should be vetting me. You should be vetting me. You should be going back to the Scripture to see, is in fact this what the Word of God actually says? Did he do this right? Or is he using this as a way to just get his own agenda across? I know you look at me and think, oh, you're just a sweet guy. You'd never try and manipulate your own agenda. Granted, all right, yes, I am precious and sweet. However, it is possible. Did I hear a groan? I think I heard a groan. Oh, all right. It is possible my motives could be something other. So, vetting this kind of discerning, testing and approving. You should do this for all things in your life. But it's not going to work. At least not as effectively as it can. If you're not doing verses 1 through 2, A and B. I mean, Paul's laying this out in this process. It's intentional. The ordering is intentional here. And so I, I want to be able to discern, to vet, to properly discern what are my options here. The next phrase, will of God, if you have the New King James, it's the last word there, last phrase, but just we're gonna, I'm going to put it second, so that you may be able to test or prove the will of God. Boy, what a term with baggage, right? Well, what, is, what is God's will for my life? It's probably a question all of us have asked. What, what is What is the will of God? Now, here's where we've run into some trouble. In modern evangelicalism, first, we've made it highly individualized. What does God want me to do in all of the minutia of my life? In other words, we're asking God about His will, but we're the the focus, right? What, what What does God want me to do? to do. Now, I'm not saying that's always a, that's a, an illegitimate question. I just mean so often we ask it in those terms, and then here's what's been added to it. This, this move in the evangelical world over the last few decades that, that we need to find our purpose and destiny. As if what, what I need to do, and you, you hear preaching like this a lot, by the way, as if I, I need to figure out what is God's purpose and destiny for my life, that the idea being this, I need to know God's purpose and destiny for my life because God's got this grand adventure for me, and I need to be able to live out this grand adventure of purpose and destiny and significance, and unfortunately how that gets translated into our minds is that if we're doing something grand and, and, and it's destiny and it's purpose, then we're always going to be happy and excited and people will know us and we'll be really influential. And there's nothing ever in the Bible that ever says that. Ever. Not one verse. 
encourages such a, what I would call, secularized self-help notion of God's will. Listen, church, by the way, that's a lot of pressure, right? Does anybody else feel a lot of pressure when you are encouraged to find a destiny so that you can live a grand adventure in life? No one else feels pressure? That seems like a lot of pressure because my life doesn't feel often like a grand adventure, right? Like I'm out, I don't know, charging, I don't know, hell with a squirt gun. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's supposed to feel like. What is a grand adventure? Do I need, does it involve cowboy boots? All right, do or swords, maybe, right? Is it Lord of the Rings? Is it a Western? I don't know what this thing is supposed to be. But this is the language that I hear. And I find it confusing and discouraging until I go to the Word and realize, you know what? You can be right in the middle of God's will and your life can be, eh, pretty good. Eh? Quite frankly, your life now can't even be measured in the space of time compared to the eternity God has for you. So why would we waste our time with, with such illogical pursuits? Now, understand, I'm not saying you should not have a pur- purpose, and you do. And there is a destiny, but it's not yours, and, and it's not mine. And God has designed me, yes, for a very specific purpose. But that purpose is the same for everybody. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gets it right. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I told you you'd be disappointed, but here you go. God's will for your life is that you would be consumed with nothing less than to ensure every square inch is giving God glory. That's God's will for your life. There it is. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is God's will for your life. Again, it's, it's, not, it's not this highly individualized deal. Now, some of you may be saying, well, pastor, that sounds great. That's not helpful. Okay, so I'm going to help you out without having to preach another 10 sermons, okay? Best book I have ever read on the topic by a guy named John MacArthur. You ever heard of him? All right, okay. John MacArthur. He's written a book called Found God's Will. Found God's Will. With all apologies to the Gideons in the room, I've probably handed out more of these than I've handed out Bibles. All right? Okay, uh, just so apologies. Sorry to my Gideon guys, but I probably have. I don't, maybe a dozen of these. Maybe more of these have I passed out. I find this to be... That's, that's how long it is. All right? Can everybody see that? Okay? Your cell phone is just as thick. Okay, so this is how thick it is. We're not talking about some deep thing. What MacArthur does in this book is he goes through what are five expectations God lays out in the Bible that specifically use the phrase, this is God's will. He lists out five of them. And then the final chapter, number six, the sixth chapter, the sixth point in the book then. If you do those five, God's will, do whatever you want. I'm telling you, it's a profound book. If you're giving yourselves to doing those things, what God says is God's will for every single believer, then you're going to be walking in the Spirit. You're going to be walking in faith and obedience. And so, Trust God's sovereignty to lead and guide accordingly, 
and do what the renewed mind is telling you to do, the spirit-controlled mind, and do what you want. Do what you want. I don't think it's something God ever intended for us to fret about to the degree we fret about it. I I think God's will is pretty straightforward. We would give ourselves then to these things. You want to know what God's will is? Be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is then at that point that you will be able to test and discern from among all the options that which is God's will. And then the final three words there, he then describes it as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you notice how Paul returns to Old Testament sacrificial language again? He used similar language there in verse 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. It's Old Testament sacrificial language. And he uses the same language then to say, in the same sense then, on the back end of this thing, you'll be able to discern, you want to know more, what is God's will? God's will is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And by perfect, by the way, he doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be doing those things without error. He means those things which God says is complete and pure and without blemish and appropriate in His sight. Again, this, this, this then is the final step in the process. Fully devoted life then understands obedience. Obedience in light of what would come out of the transformed mind and the ability to discern between all of the options and make an appropriate, godly choice. By the way, this only makes sense given the fact that according to the New Testament, what was done in the Old Testament is now understood as being a part of the people of God. Then let me explain that. It's no wonder that Paul would use sacrificial Old Testament language here. Because in the Old Testament, they had a temple to perform sacrifices in, right? In the New Testament, what does 1 Corinthians tell us? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they were to bring sacrifices, animals that were then killed and presented unto the Lord. But now in the New Testament, since we are the temple, what are we offering? We are offering living sacrifices unto Him. Yes, we are bringing ourselves and offering ourselves, but not as atonement for our sin. That was done for us in Jesus Christ. We are offering ourselves as the sacrifice, that which is holy and acceptable in God's sight. The Old Testament, they had priests. Priests that you would bring the sacrifice to and they'd do their job in the tabernacle or temple. In the New Testament, Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. So this is the context of all that Paul has encouraged us here in these first two verses. Again, I know we've been on it for a long time. I know we have unpacked it. I hope and pray uh, that you have found it to be uh, helpful and, uh, and appropriate and that you understand better than what is expected of the fully devoted life. But I think it's been worth this amount of time. Now, I want to conclude here then with a list of questions. They're not in your notes, and you're not going to have time to write them all down, but if you want them, uh, I'd be glad to, to email them to you, print them off in some form. Five questions, and these are, I'm just taking these five points, and I'm turning them into questions. So in, in light of all of these things, in light of these two verses. Here's the questions that I would ask. First, have I received the mercy of God? 
What I mean by that, first and foremost, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed that you are a sinner, trusted that Christ died for you and rose from the dead? The means by which you can even be an acceptable sacrifice is to first come under the mercy of God, the goodness of God's grace through the gospel. You don't do anything to save yourself. You don't, you're not going to earn that mercy by doing two through five. You live out two through five because God's mercy is given to you through that great gospel transaction of Romans 1 through 11. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Here in just a moment as we sing a final song together and I'll be down front. And if you'd like to pray about this, if you'd like me to uh, tell you more about this, I'll also be available after the service. I hope and pray that every person here knows the mercy of God. But then I'd ask them uh, questions two through five. Am I fully devoted in all areas of my life? Am I a living sacrifice? Every square inch of my life should have the stamp of God's sovereign grace upon it. Every square inch of my life should have the stamp of the gospel on it. Does it? Number three, am I avoiding the conforming power of this world? In what ways does the world try and press me into its mold? And in what ways do I say, okay, yeah, I'll do that. What ways do I submit to the ways of the world? Number four, Am I being transformed by renewing my mind? Am I doing those things consistent with the work of the gospel, with the work of the Holy Spirit to continue to make me like Christ? And am I walking in faithful obedience to God's will? Now, the rest of Romans spells this out in very specific areas. You thought Paul, you thought Paul was meddling now. You wait. <laughs> he's going to, as, the, as they used to say, he's going to go to meddling, all right? All up in our business. I mean, it, it's, he's going to get personal. He's going to talk about things. <laughs> he's going to talk about, you're going to argue with Paul. Just go ahead and read the beginning of chapter 13 of Romans, all right? You're going to argue with, I'm telling you, there's things in here. Paul's going to list out a whole series of commands, and it's just going to be, it's going to be like, you know, the fighter getting in the corner, and he's just, just, beating the stuffing out of you, all right? I mean, it's going to feel like that. Paul's going to bring all this to bear, but the good news is it is all a result of God's good grace toward us, that we would be conformed, fashioned into the image of Christ. Do you want to live a life fully devoted to the gospel? This is what the gospel does in you and to you, and so I pray that is what we would submit ourselves to this morning. Let's stand together, and I will pray, and as I pray, this time will be open. If you'd like to come and pray, if you'd like me to pray with you, uh, or just uh, where you are as you sing, that it would be another uh, response to God's Word and His goodness toward us. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people, for time uh, under Your Word, under Your Word in song, and under Your Word as revealed to us in Scripture. Father, we, we just pray, God, that you would continue to bring that to bear on our lives, that we would find ourselves living in submission to you and to this great gospel by which you have saved us. That every square inch of our lives stamped with your glory, and that others would then see Christ in us. So to you, we surrender our lives and pray that you, by your Spirit, would bring your word to bear on us, that you would continue to make us like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.